0: Today, Socrates and Adamantus recommend the lies you should tell to the healthy child, and they introduce a new epic hero, Achilles the Sensible. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. last episode, Socrates and the boys invented a city as a thought experiment, and they gave it an army. And then they asked, now that we've given these guys spears, how can we make sure they don't point them at the other citizens and say, give us everything you've got? Glaucon and Socrates agreed that the first step is to pick guardians that have good natures, like dogs. And in this episode, Socrates and Adamantus are going to talk about how to educate them. They ask the timeless question, what do we tell to children so they don't grow up to be assholes? And as is often the case when people are discussing child's education, they spend a lot more time discussing what they should avoid telling children rather than what they should tell them. Socrates and Adamantus, they're going to go through Greek mythology and poetry with a censor's pen and cross out everything that might have a bad influence on the guardians. And when they're done there's hardly anything left. And this raises a big question. How much should the goal of moral education determine the stories that we tell to children? And what about the stories that we tell to adults? I find this conversation interesting. I think it raises some really important questions. But I also find it actually funny. And I didn't the first time, maybe even the first couple times I read it. And that's because I didn't know about the background. I didn't know about the... Greek poetic tradition, mythology, the kind of education that Adamantus and Socrates are referring to. So to start, I want to spend a couple of minutes giving a little background, so when the dialogue starts, it has something to land on. Traditionally, ancient Greek education had two components, gymnastic for the body, music for the soul. The word gymnastic is pretty straightforward. It is basically gym class. It refers to your whole physical regimen, exercise, sport, diet, all that stuff. The word music is a little trickier, because in Greek, it means more than one thing. Sometimes when they say music, they mean the same thing that we mean. Songs, notes, instruments, stuff like that. But usually, music refers to all the arts. Painting, sculpture, philosophy, everything is called music because it means everything to do with the muses, the Greek goddesses of inspiration. So when I'm talking about musical education, I'm really talking about arts education, and it was supposed to develop the soul in the same way that gymnastic is supposed to develop the body. And the most important subcategory of music, by far, was poetry. In Greece, poetry was not just a niche interest like it is now it was a major part of the culture. They would recite it aloud. They would listen to professional performances of epics like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And the theatre, also written in poetry, was the most important form of pop culture in Athens. And poetry also included, as Socrates and Adamantus are going to discuss, the stories that were told to children. So poetry as an art form in Athens was treated with a lot of reverence. It was a really important part of civic and religious culture and of ethical education. The Athenians, they learned about religion and the myths through poetry. They learned about heroes like Achilles and Ajax and Hercules that the young would look up to. The poets were seen as teachers of the people, and they were considered wise and even divinely inspired. That's why the characters in Plato are quoting poets all the time. Now, what was Greek poetry like. Because I just told you that this is a very important art form that is treated with a lot of reverence and is involved in ethical education, you may be imagining that it was something like Sunday school lessons or after school specials or some other form of boring and didactic storytelling. You would be entirely wrong. Ancient Greek poetry was written to entertain, the characters are larger than life. They're gods, heroes, royalty. Most of them have superpowers, and nearly all of them have massive personality issues. The plots are full of violence and conflict, sex, and scandal. The Greek poets, they wanted to make their audiences cry and laugh and have nightmares. And they weren't at all shy about using melodrama and shock value to do it. So those are the two things I want you to know about Greek poetry before I start the dialogue that it played this really important, central role in the culture and in ethical education. But also, that it was written for maximum juiciness and drama. And if you remember those two things, the conversation that's coming up should make a lot more sense to you than it did to me the first time through. We're picking up the conversation right after Glaucon and Socrates discussed what kind of nature the Guardian should have. And now, Adamantus... Played by Rebecca Amsleg, is going to jump in and carry on talking to Socrates, who is played by me. So it's settled. We should find guardians that have natures like dogs swift, strong, spirited, and wise. But how should we educate these young dogs? Do you think that talking about education might be able to help us find justice?
1: Definitely, Socrates. Tell us. What kind of education do you think they should have?
0: Well, that question could take all night. But I think the first step is to decide what lies we're going to tell to the children.
1: What? What do you mean?
0: I mean their kids. What you tell them is going to affect them for the rest of their lives. So we can't just let their mothers and their nurses decide what to tell them, can we?
1: No, I guess not Socrates, but what do you mean exactly about telling them lies?
0: Myths are a Think about the stories we tell to children. Stories about gods and heroes. They have some truth in them, but you know they're not 100% factual, right?
1: Yes, of course.
0: So they're lies. And I'm saying we need new lies, because most of the ones we tell now are totally inappropriate.
1: Really? How so?
0: Well, it's not just that our poets tell lies. That can't be helped. It's that they tell ugly lies. The story that Hesiod tells about Uranus, how Kronos took revenge and what his son did to him, that is a slander against the gods. And even if it were true, I don't think it's appropriate for children, or even for most adults.
1: Yeah, those ones are pretty rough.
0: We want our citizens to love the gods and their families. We want them to get along with each other, and to think that fighting with each other is the worst thing they can do. So we can't have stories like we do now about gods fighting gods and fighting heroes and mortals, our guardians should only hear the best stories.
1: Well, which ones are those?
0: Well, I'm not a poet, and neither are you, Adamantis. We're founding a city here. We're not writing fairy tales. So we just need to set some general models or guidelines that the poets in our city can follow when they're writing the stories.
1: Fine. Then what are the guidelines?
0: Well, the gods are good, right, Adamantis?
1: Yes, of course.
0: Then the first rule should be that no poem can show the gods causing harm. If anything bad happens in the world, it's not the gods' fault. No more Zeus on Mount Olympus throwing down good fates and bad fates at random. No more gods starting wars. No more gods hurting people.
1: Well, you've got my vote on that one. What's the next law?
0: I think our second law should be that the poets can't show the gods lying. There's all these stories about the gods shape-shifting and appearing as mortals or animals or even inanimate objects to trick us. You've got Proteus as a tree, Thetis as fire. Zeus the goose. (laughs) Ha! Exactly! Isn't it ridiculous? Why would the gods lie?
1: Wait a second, Socrates. You said that our education was all about which lies to tell to the guardians. And now you're saying that gods can't lie?
0: Well... There are lies, and then there are lies. Let me explain. 1st there they're the lies that are bad for you. These are the ones that really deceive you and create ignorance in your soul. These are true lies. Everyone hates them, and nobody should tell them. Neither gods nor men. But on the other hand, there are lies that are pretty useful sometimes. If you need to deceive your enemies, or to help your friends. Or if you're just telling stories about ancient things like we're doing right now we don't really know what happened we just have to tell something that's as close to the truth as we can imagine technically yes these are lies but they're only lies in speech they're not lie lies
1: yes i can see how this kind of thing could be useful but I'm...
0: well obviously we don't want just anyone running around telling lies in our city in our city we'll say that only the rulers can lie and only for the good of the city.
1: All right, Socrates. But what about the gods? Why can't they lie?
0: Well, they're so powerful, they don't need to deceive their enemies. They can just help their friends without lying. And they know what happened in ancient times, so they don't have to make those stories up. The gods have no reason to lie.
1: Okay, I agree to both of the rules. No more stories that show gods causing harm or lying.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, now that we've covered the gods, we should probably say something about death.
1: Sure. What are you thinking?
0: Well, have you ever noticed that when our poets talk about death, they're always describing bodies as mouldering corpses or food for worms? And Hades is always dank and miserable. And when people die, their souls are shrieking as they're being dragged off to the underworld.
1: Ugh, yes, I have
0: noticed. Well, why do the poets have to be so negative? In our city, we need to sit the poets down and ask them to find something nice to say about death. All that spooky stuff is fun, but it's not going to make our guardians fearless in battle, is it?
1: I guess not. We should probably be saying that death is great.
0: Exactly. You get it. And you know what else? If, heaven forbid, someone that you know dies... What is the best way to act? Does the good man carry on and act like there's been some kind of catastrophe? Or does he try to hold it together and act sensibly?
1: Oh, I think that good men try to control themselves in that kind of situation.
0: Well, not in Homer. Homer is always describing heroes and kings crying and rolling around in dung and rubbing ash in their hair just because they lost a friend or a child or some money. Is that really setting a good example?
1: Definitely not. Because if our guardians see the gods acting like that, they won't make any effort to control themselves.
0: And if we can't show our heroes lamenting too much, then by your logic, the poet shouldn't show the gods or heroes laughing too much either, am I right? Yeah, by
1: my logic, Socrates. Sure, I, I accept that.
0: And I assume we want our young guardians to be moderate men, don't we? They should be obedient to their rulers... And they should be masters of themselves when it comes to drink and food and sex, right?
1: Yeah, of course they should.
0: Our poem should reflect that. We need to make sure that the Guardians hear all the passages in Homer where the characters silently obey their leaders. And where they show fortitude in the face of adversity instead of moaning and complaining.
1: Yeah, we definitely can't leave those out.
0: And you remember that scene where Odysseus is talking about how the best thing in life is a table piled high with bread and meat and a goblet full of wine. Of course. And the part where Zeus sees Hera and he wants her so badly that he forgets all of his plans and has sex with her right there on the ground because he can't even wait to bring her inside.
1: (laughs) How could I forget?
0: (laughs) And what about the part where Achilles calls his own commander a dog-eyed drunk with the heart of a deer?
1: Yeah, that one was the best.
0: I know! And if we want to set a good example for our guardians, we're going to have to cut out all of them, aren't we?
1: Of course, you're right. They have to go. What else, Socrates?
0: Achilles. It always bothered me how Homer portrays Achilles. It seems a bit off because his version of Achilles is totally out of control. He's always telling off his commanders, fighting with the gods. But Achilles is the son of a very wise and moderate man. And his mother is a goddess, and he was educated by the wise Chiron. So with that kind of background, I think Achilles would have been a very sensible young man. And I think anyone who says he's a hothead must be lying.
1: Absolutely, Socrates. Achilles the sensible.
0: Perfect. Because if we allow any of these stories about men and gods misbehaving, then our young guardians will probably think it's okay for them to misbehave as well.
1: Yeah, they will, for sure.
0: Then we're agreed about what stories we should tell. And now we just have to decide how they should be told.
1: Uh, I'm not following you, Socrates.
0: I mean that we need to decide if stories should be told in simple narration or in imitation.
1: What are you talking about?
0: Sorry, I'm not explaining this well. You know how sometimes the poet just describes what happens and tells you what everyone does... But he does it in his own voice. He's narrating what goes on. Sure. But other times, the poet speaks as if he were the character. Homer tries to make us forget that he's Homer and instead tries to speak in the voice of whoever's in the poem. Like when he has crises go down to the Greek ships to beg and try to ransom his daughter.
1: Oh, okay. I get it.
0: Well, that's what I mean by imitation. The poet is imitating the characters by trying to seem like them.
1: Let me guess. You're about to ban theater along with everything else.
0: Maybe Adamantus. And maybe even more. I don't really know yet. But we've set sail, and we have to go wherever the argument blows us.
1: Right you are, Socrates. I'm with you.
0: Socrates and Adamantus go on to talk about imitation for a while. They aren't absolutely clear on whether they're going to ban theater altogether, but they do put some pretty heavy regulations on imitation. If it's allowed at all, it can only be imitations of good men doing good deeds, because anything that young people imitate may become part of their character, so imitations of bad behavior are forbidden. Plus, Imitating a lot of different things doesn't fit well with the one-man-one-job principle that they set up earlier. And so Adamantus and Socrates agree that if some amazing poet who's capable of imitating anything in the world shows up at their city, someone like Homer, then they'll just send him away. Because the only poets that they want are the ones who are less fun to listen to, but who are willing to follow all the rules for poetry that they already set up. And that means that The way of telling stories is just as controlled as the content of the tales. The position that Socrates and Adamantus wind up in is pretty extreme, and I have a lot to say about it, but first I just want to talk a little bit about the philosophical method by which they got there. At the very end of that bit of dialogue, when Adamantus realizes Socrates might be about to throw out the theatre along with everything else, Socrates says, we've set sail, And now we have to go wherever the winds of argument blow us. That line has always stuck with me because I think it tells us something really interesting about how these guys do philosophy and how it differs from a lot of other kinds of conversation. For example, imagine that you are sitting on a committee for education reform and like Socrates and Adamantus, you want to gear the education more towards creating good citizens. A reasonable approach would be to share your goal with the others, come up with some proposals, and then discuss them with all the relevant stakeholders. You talk to other teachers and educators, you talk to parents, maybe the poets who will be writing the stories, there will be religious groups who are concerned, and other groups of citizens who care. Ideally, you'd hear everyone's point of view and hammer out a consensus, or at least something that doesn't completely alienate any important group. This kind of discussion can actually be really challenging, and it takes a lot of careful framing and small incremental changes and especially compromise for it to work. And this kind of discussion is the opposite of sailing wherever the winds of argument blow. Socrates and Adamantus, they start with a plausible argument with sturdy premises. We don't want children to grow up to be bad people. What we teach them at a young age can have a big effect. And therefore, we should avoid children's stories that could have a bad influence on the kids. This is straightforward. It makes a lot of sense. It would be welcome at the committee meeting. But instead of trying to avoid offending anyone and finding a compromise, Socrates and Adamantus start ruthlessly deriving all of the argument's implications. The wilder and more controversial, the better. I think of this as playing a game called By That Logic. If children's education should be moral education, then by that logic, we shouldn't show gods fighting each other or hurting good people. And by that logic, we should also take out any scenes of excessive mourning, of insubordination, and any depictions of people enjoying sensual pleasures like food, sex, or drink. And by that logic, we should also eliminate imitation, no more theater, and so on in that direction. If you're the kind of person who's into philosophy, you know that the whole point is to see how far you can take it, and that things only start to get interesting when you get to something that's weird enough that people say, hold on, that can't be right. And that's where all the thinking and discussion happens. If you're like Socrates, this is your idea of a good time. But not everyone is like Socrates. Not everyone is into this game, and it's much more welcome in some contexts than in others, As a general rule of thumb, you will be kicked out of a committee meeting before you get to say anything that's philosophically interesting. And that's because the higher the practical stakes of the conversation, the more likely that arguing for wild, counterintuitive positions, often called hot takes, will seem like you're showing off or trolling or trivializing serious issues. Or worse still, people might take you seriously and conclude that you're some kind of extremist. But Socrates and Adamantus are not on a committee for education reform. And they don't care about being taken seriously or outraging people. They're at a private get-together. They're talking about a hypothetical city that they just invented. So they can really cut loose. And the educational plan that Socrates and Adamantus come up with is radical. They're asking, what if we chose stories based on the goal of moral education. And it turns out that doing that would require completely bulldozing the existing tradition. First of all, their plan is deeply impious. If you take Greek mythology and you remove all the stories that have gods fighting or lying or harming mortals, there's virtually nothing left. Any devout Greek pagan would strongly object to this plan. And the reform isn't just a religious outrage, it's also an aesthetic outrage. Socrates and Adamantus are systematically going through poetry and removing anything that might provoke a strong reaction. But provoking a strong reaction is the whole point of poetry. It's supposed to move you. So not only would Greek poetry be totally unrecognizable if it followed their demands, I can't imagine any popular culture that could follow these rules. Think of the TV shows and the movies that you've enjoyed over the past couple of years. How many of them would make it past Socrates and Adamantus? And even though they start the discussion talking about what stories we should tell to little children, there's a lot of stuff in the text that implies that this program of censorship would apply to adults too. When the all-imitating poet comes to the city and wants to recite his poems, They don't slap a parental advisory sticker on him. They banish him from the city. So this is the plan that Socrates and Adamantus agree on. And because of that, it would be easy to assume, and a lot of people do this, that Plato himself is a real prude, hates poetry, and wants to censor all art. And actually, if you hear or read a very brief summary of Plato, this is probably what it will tell you. But I don't think that's right. I don't think that is the message that Plato is trying to convey. Plato never says, burn all the Homer books. Socrates and Adamantus are two characters in a play written by Plato. And they are suggesting this education policy for a city that they made up as a thought experiment. And when they're developing this policy, they're not having a straight-faced policy discussion. They're riffing. They're being purposely over the top and trying to make it sound as ridiculous as possible. They're asking poets to make death look good. And they're asking the characters in melodramas to stop crying. And one of the big kickers is what they do to Achilles. His whole character is cocky, emotional warrior genius. The tantrums and the arrogance are the whole point of the character. It's what makes him fun. But Socrates wants to turn him into a sensible and obedient young man. It's like saying, let's have Anigo Montoya, but more forgiving. And all this joking and absurdity is easy to miss if you're reading this book for the first time. But I think that most Athenians who read it would have been laughing or rolling their eyes because it's silly. Nobody would have read this and thought of it as a serious political proposal— And I'm sure you've enjoyed this kind of conversation before, where being ridiculous and edgy and coming up with the most outrageous conclusions that you can is the whole fun of it. In my opinion, that's what's happening here between Adamantus and Socrates. There are some people who read this book, and they see that, and they think that maybe, since Socrates and Adamantus are laughing about the idea of moralizing poetry, that means that Plato is against it. They're mocking the idea that poetry should be subject to morality because it's a bad idea. Now, I think this reading of Plato is mistaken as well. Socrates, he never rejects the idea of moral education or of censorship. We have no good reason to believe that Socrates doesn't think the things that he's saying, even if he's laughing while he says them. And this brings up one of the most important interpretive questions that you are going to have to ask yourself when you're reading The Republic, which is, is he serious? This question is going to come up again and again. Even if you don't care about poetry, I promise you that Socrates and the gang are going to decide some things for the city in speech that you would not want for your own community. And you may start wondering if that's the kind of thing that Plato really wants. Well, in my personal opinion, it is a mistake to come to Plato looking for a conclusive argument on one side or the other of the political questions that he's addressing. The Socratic art isn't about instilling beliefs. It's about engineering train crashes between your existing beliefs in hopes that you'll start to examine them more closely. In this case, he takes the totally plausible idea that we should choose children's stories that will have a good moral effect on them, and then he sets it off on its logical rails, until it smashes headlong into other things that we believe in, like telling exciting stories, maintaining our religious or mythological tradition, and so on. Socrates is about highlighting tensions and contradictions, not resolving them. So I don't think he's saying that we should give up art for the sake of morality. And I don't think he's saying that we should give up on moral education for the sake of art. He's just saying that if you follow either one of these right to their logical conclusion, they're going to crash into each other. The aim is to make us uncomfortable enough with our own beliefs that we start to question them. In that spirit, I'm going to look at how these two ideas play out in the present day. The two ideas I'm talking about are the idea that we should choose stories based on the moral effect that they'll have, And the idea that doing that would probably ruin stories. I think that both of these ideas are still in play today. They're still in tension. But most of us manage to ignore that tension by applying these thoughts to separate stages of life. So for children, people do seem to believe that moral education is very important. We think that children are malleable and that it's important that they don't get the wrong messages. And because of that, we've turned children's libraries into artistic wastelands. A lot of people I know have had kids recently, and as far as I can tell, baby books are either supposed to tell you what the animals say, or to instill moral virtues. I've seen recent titles like The Anti-Racist Baby, The Feminist Baby. And when I was a child... I grew up reading a series of books called Value Tales, and they were biographies of exemplary historical individuals who illustrated some virtue or other. We had Jackie Robinson for Courage, and Helen Keller for Determination, and so on. Nearly all the children's books that I've seen have been like this. Tendentious, pedagogical, moralizing. There are some partial exceptions. Roald Dahl may give you undernotes of obscenity and creepy Oompa Loompa antics, but none that I've seen have the kind of action or moral chaos that you find in Greek poetry. No killing, no incest, no baby-eating, nothing. And you might feel uncomfortable that I'm suggesting more incest and murder in children's books, but the people who made the Athenian Golden Age were weaned on Hesiod and Homer, And so are Adamantus and Glaucon, and Plato, and Socrates. And they turned out all right. And these men who lived through one of the high watermarks of human civilization would have been astonished at how completely we've handed over children's art to the moralizers. We have actually instituted a version of the program that Adamantus and Socrates were doing as a bit. And they might ask us, If children can't be exposed to anything but spiritual pablum, then how will they ever learn anything about life? And why would they ever pay attention to this boring kind of story in the first place? So if you ever read a children's book and thought, gosh, that was a really beautiful message, it's so important, or is it really safe for kids to read Huck Finn? You may have lost your sense of how ridiculous the notion of a completely moralized culture is. But the fact that so many of us completely accept the moralization of stories and art for children is especially funny to me because we totally reject it for adults. When it comes to adults, most people tend to think of the idea of submitting art and stories to the demands of morality as unnecessary and even demeaning. We imagine that grown-ups are not at the mercy of cultural influences, We can consume ambiguous and even disturbing art without being warped or traumatized by it. So if we want to watch porn or SVU or read conspiracy forums all day, there's no reason we shouldn't. And I think this risks forgetting the other side of Socrates and Adamantus' argument. The base assumption that Socrates and Adamantus built up their whole program on, the thing that they thought was obvious, was that culture and stories matter. Over time, our culture becomes part of our nature. And I think that actually most people do believe this is true on some level, at least for others. That some kinds of stories and media actually can affect who we are. For example, maybe consuming a lot of political media can lead to political polarization. A lot of researchers believe this. And this is exactly the kind of change that Socrates and Adamantus were most worried about. Stories that make the citizens more inclined to see each other as enemies. Or to take another anecdotal example that I've never read a study about, I know adults who love horror movies, true crime, haunted houses, stuff like that. They like being scared. But these are the same people who are afraid to walk down a dark street at night. And they think everyone's going to attack them. And they can't see a roll of duct tape without mentally coming up with an escape plan. So if any of these things are true, and the kind of media and stories that we consume does affect our character, then the stories and media we consume can't be purely a question of enjoyment or aesthetics. It's always also a moral question. We have to at least consider the effects on our character of the stories and culture that we consume. We have to think of the moral implications of our taste. Now, Adamantus and Socrates... They were talking about ancient Greek poetry, not 21st century popular culture. So we might hope that our taste isn't as corrupting as theirs. We don't have the same kind of murderous children's stories after all. But look at the kind of things they cut out. Emotional scenes, conflict, images of sensual pleasure. These are not particular to Greek poetry. These are still the key elements in an appealing and popular story. And that raises the possibility that it's not Athenian taste that's bad for people, but human taste. In Book 10, right at the end of The Republic, Socrates is going to come back to this topic and explain why that is. Why the very things that we like may be turning us into worse people. But that doesn't happen for ages. Next episode, Glaucon is going to jump back into the conversation, discuss other enjoyable things that we can cut out of The Guardian's lives, and what more nutritious stories we can actually tell them. This episode was brought to you by Patreon sponsors Adam Hortop and Stephen or Stephen Barnum. Thanks for your support. It's really encouraging and helpful. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, please tell someone else about Good in Theory. We're still a new podcast and I want to get into as many years as possible. Thank you also today to Rebecca Amzaleg for playing Adamantus and to Septeda for editing Social Help and one of my favorite episode arts to date. Have a look at that. In the bit of text that we covered today, Socrates and Adamantus talk a lot about the things they want to cut out of Greek mythology and there are a ton of specific references that I couldn't really get into without getting off track. But still, I think it'd be nice for you to have an idea of the kind of story that they think is so morally harmful that the Guardians can't hear it. The first story that Socrates mentions is the myth of Uranus, Kronos, and Zeus. And he says, this story should absolutely not be told to children, and it probably shouldn't be told to adults either. So if you are a child or adult who is concerned with your moral well-being, Cover your fucking ears, because this one is a doozy. Uranus is a primal god. He's the sky, and he hooks up with his mom, Gaia, a.k.a. the Earth. Gaia gives birth to a bunch of gods called the Titans. But Uranus hates his kids. He locks them up under the Earth. Gaia gets mad, and she makes a sickle with a blade made out of flint. And she says, Here you go, kids. Go cut off dad's balls. And most of the Titans were too nervous to try it. But Cronus says, hell yeah, he takes the sickle, castrates Uranus, and the dick blood splatters all over the Earth. And it turns into giants and nymphs and the Furies. And then Cronus throws his dad's dick and balls into the sea, and a bunch of white foam forms around it, and that is where we get Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It's not over yet. Cronus becomes king, and Gaia and his dickless dad say, hey tough guy, You're not going to be so tough when one of your ingrate kids does the same thing to you. And Cronus, he comes up with a plan. Not contraception. He thinks, my kids can't kill me if I eat them first. So he knocks up a goddess named Rhea a half dozen times. And the first five times she gives birth to gods like Hera and Poseidon and Hades, Cronus eats the baby. That's what's happening in that spooky Goya paint. When Rhea is on her sixth pregnancy, She's a little fed up, and she and Gaia hatch a scheme. When it's time to birth Zeus, she does it in secret, and she wraps up a rock in baby swaddling and gives it to Cronus and says, Honey, I made your favorite! And Cronus just gulps it down and doesn't even notice. They raise Zeus in secret, and when he's grown up and strong, he comes and he sneaks Cronus a barf pill, and Cronus barfs up all of Zeus's siblings who are still sitting undigested in his stomach. And together, they wage war on the Titans, defeat them, and that is how we get the rule of the Olympians, who are the Greek gods that we know and are mostly horrified by.